guys want to jump in, is that right? You need a passport, probably too late to get a passport, but uh, we'd love to have you go and be a part of the team. Well, last week I started the first of four messages really based on what I was able to learn this year, participating in a spiritual formation retreat in the Smoky Mountains in uh, April, and really felt compelled, was very moved that week, that some of the things that I learned, and, and some of them were brand new, and some of them were reminders, and some of them were refreshers, but I really wanted to, to share it with you. And this is kind of outside the box of what I would typically do, and maybe what we would typically do on the Sunday morning. Normally, we'd grab a passage of Scripture, a chunk of Scripture, and we just kind of plow our way through that Scripture, and we're going to be back in that in the month of August. We're going to be looking at the book of Jonah. we got some really cool things planned, but I wanted to share with you some of my takeaways, some of my aha moments. And so last week, we started by looking at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, and what really is the blessed life. You could turn on your television today, and you could watch a couple of preachers that would tell you the blessed life is a mansion or a luxury automobile, and you can have it if you just love God more. Or if you just give their ministry more, good things are going to come your way. And so anytime we use that phrase, the blessed life, I can't hear that without being in that context in the back of my mind. Um, I despise the health and wealth gospel, quite frankly. I think it is a scourge on Christianity, not just in America, but around the world. But I do think, especially when I read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, I am called to embrace and strive for the blessed life. But the blessed life isn't about houses and cars and perfect health. It's about choosing, as Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 tells us, the way of the Lord as opposed to the way of the world. It's about having this love, as Psalm 1 and 2 say, in the law of the Lord, the word of the Lord, as opposed to the wisdom of this present age. But something always gets in the way. It gets in the way in my life, and if you're being honest, it gets in the way in your life, and it's what I would call the duplicity of your heart. The duplicity of your heart. I want to be all in. I want the blessed life. But my humanness gets in the way. My selfish desires, they get in the way. And so we really saw that last week as we looked at the life of David. David, the man after God's own heart. David, who slayed the giant. David, who was Israel's greatest king. David, who danced before the Lord in his underwear with all his might and didn't care what anybody thought. David, who had poured out upon him only the second unconditional covenant promise seen in scripture up to that point in time that David from the very beginning struggled with this duplicity of his heart the very first words of David recorded in scripture you can go look it up if you want to first Samuel 17 I think it's verse 26 what will be done for the man that slays the giant now he goes on and has some incredible faith statements and he goes on and he kills the giant but from the very beginning, he's struggling with this, what am I going to get? What's in it for me? And I struggle with that. And if you're being honest, more than likely, you probably struggle with it. And it can get in the way of being who God truly wants us to be. To really having peace with God in a very holistic, 
sense. And so today, I want to jump off on that, and I want to tell you about a sociologist and a theologian. And this isn't a joke. This is a true story. It sounded like it was a joke getting ready to start. I promise it's not. Sociologist by the name of Frank Lake, theologian by the name of Emil Bruner, were brought in to try to tackle an issue, a crisis, a problem. See, there was a denomination that was losing missionaries at a rapid pace. And these were the brightest of the bright in seminary. They had mastered the Bible and the theology and the linguistics, and they were getting on the mission field, and they were quitting in record numbers. They weren't just quitting mission work. Some of them were walking away from the faith altogether. They were tired, they were burnt out, and they'd barely even been on the mission field. And so Lake and Bruner were tasked with trying to figure out from Scripture, what can we do to solve this problem? What can we do to figure out why so many are quitting when they're doing what many would call life's greatest call? And in the midst of that, they decided, let's study the life of Jesus. And they came up with what is known as either the dynamic cycle, or it's known today as the cycle of grace. And so the issue at hand for these missionaries, and the issue at hand for you and me, is too many are ready to throw in the towel. They're ready to quit. They're ready to say, I am all out. I'm burnt out. I'm tired. I'm frustrated. I want no more. And what Lake and Bruner discovered is that when you look at the life of Jesus, it's really not an accident. When you look at how he put together all that he put together and the cycle that defined his life. Now, some of you are sitting there, and maybe you're a little cynical by this. You're saying, well, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God, fully God, fully man. Can we really put it into practice in our lives? The answer is absolutely yes. So let me put the cycle up on the screen. I've got a couple of visuals for you. This is a look at the cycle, acceptance, sustenance, significance, and fruitfulness. And you can see there's an input, and then there's an output. And so Jesus, the cycle began with acceptance and moved on to sustaining activity, sustenance, and then moved on to significance, really claiming who he was, and then that's when the fruitfulness played out. Next slide gives you a different look at it, same kind of a concept here, but it's this, this fourfold cycle that unfolded in his life. And so I'm going to take you through this. And I want to encourage you, if you, you're uh, fascinated by this, you can find a lot of research on the internet, Google, Lake, Bruner, Cycle of Grace. I was fascinated by all that I learned this week preparing for this message. So cycle one, or step one of the cycle of grace is what we would call acceptance. Accepting who you are. Who are you? Think about that for just a minute. Who are you? If you were to define who you were, some of you might say you're a father, others might say you're a mother everyone here is a son or a daughter some of you might say i'm a state farm employee or i'm a caterpillar employee or i'm a farmer or i'm a teacher or i'm a student or i'm a basketball player or i'm a cheerleader i'm in the math club whatever it may be you you could come up with different ways to define yourself the problem is that many times we sell ourselves short with inadequate definitions jesus from the very beginning according to matthew was told who he was. In the midst of his baptism, this incredible thing happens. This dove ascends from heaven, and we hear the voice of God. Remember what the voice of God was? You are my son, 
I am well pleased with you. And in the very next chapter, in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation narrative, remember all the different ways that Jesus was tempted? He was tempted because he hadn't eaten for 40 days and wanted to have the bread or the stone turned to bread. He was tempted with popularity. He, he was tempted with power. Those were all legitimate temptations. But the first temptation that came his way was an identity temptation. Remember what Satan said to him? If you are the Son of God then turn that stone to bread. If you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from the mountain. If you are the Son of God. And so the, the first step in this whole process is accepting who you are. So who are you? Well, if you're a, a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing that you can say about yourself. You are a child of God. And that's where you begin. That's not the end. That is the beginning. Step two of the cycle is what we call sustenance. And so I want you to think for just a moment, and if you want to, you can talk to your neighbor that's next to you if you like them, and you can ask the, the question, what were some of the sustaining practices in Jesus' life? Think about that for just a moment, and if you like to, talk to your person next to you. Come up with two or three sustaining activities in Jesus' life. What were they? Ready, get set, go. Sustaining activities, sustaining practices in Jesus' life. You're not talking. You can talk. It's okay. Sustaining activities, sustaining practices in Jesus' life. Well, there's a whole bunch that I could give you. I want to give you four today. And the first might be the most important, and that is in... Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus practicing silence, solitude, and prayer. I hope we're going to put these up on the screen here. Sustaining activities in Jesus' life. Silence, solitude, and prayer. Mark 1 is a cool chapter. You see the power of Jesus at work. There's healings going on. Demons are being cast out. It's awesome. But we miss maybe the greatest takeaway for our lives today, and that's Jesus' sustaining activity, sustaining practice of silent solitude and prayer. Verse 35 says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark out, Jesus got up and he went to a solitude, solitary place to pray. And he ended up getting rebuked, actually. His disciples couldn't find him, and they're looking for him. They're like, Jesus, what are you doing? Let's go. We got sermons to preach. We got healings to do. We got lives to change. But it's in the midst of all these miracles, in the midst of all this supernatural, that Jesus is putting into practice this sustaining activity of silence and solitude and prayer. What about worship in community? Luke 4 says, and this is when he's getting ready to go to his home synagogue, he's going to preach his first sermon, and they're going to hate it so much they want to kill him. But before it gets to that, it says that Jesus went to the synagogue as was his custom, as was his habit. If it's Sabbath, Jesus was at the synagogue. And so we live in a day and age where just church attendance, it's at an all-time low for church members. Less people are going to church than ever before. And, and Gallup came out with something not long ago and said that if you get someone in your building two times a month for whatever reason, maybe they come to church one Sunday a month, and maybe they come to a study one, one time during the month, Wednesday, Tuesday, Sunday, whatever it may be, consider them a regular attender. 
And so if Jesus had this as his custom, I need to have this as, as my pattern. You need to have this as your pattern. Regular worship. What about fellowship gatherings? You, you may not believe this, but do you know that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunk? That's like the lightning bolt's going to you know, come down from heaven and zap somebody. But you know why they said that? Because he spent a lot of time at parties. He spent a lot of time in community. He spent a lot of time with other people. And I don't think he was a drunk, and I don't think he was a glutton. But that was the charge that was made against him. But that was a sustaining activity. What about Scripture-guided and Scripture-driven? We see it in the temptation narratives, but we really see it all throughout the life of Jesus. He knows the Word. He's memorized the Word. He's using the Word. The Word is driving him. Step two, sustenance. Step three of the cycle of grace, we're moving from input to output, is this idea of significance. How do you find significance in life? What brings you significance in life? Well, let's talk about Jesus. What was the significance of Jesus' life? How did Jesus find significance in his life? John does a great job of painting this picture of how Jesus moves from acceptance to sustenance to what we're going to call significance by the I am statements that he shares in the Gospel of John. Seven times Jesus gives an I am statement about himself. We'll put them up on the screen here. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I'm the gate. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You are the branches. And at this point, Jesus is really beginning to gain his significance. And he's starting to let that seep out to others. Too many Christians today find significance in the things that we do. And so if I were to ask you, how do you find significance as, as a Christ follower, you might say, well, I serve in the food pantry. That's where I find significance. Or I sing in the choir. That's where I find significance. Or, or I, I serve communion every week. That's where I find significance. Or I, I teach a Sunday school class. That's where I find significance. Or, or I, I serve in the children's ministry or the youth ministry. That's where I find significance. Now, should you do all of that? You better believe it. And some of you that aren't doing that, we need you to start doing that. There is a place for you. But that's not where you find significance. You find significance in being a follower of Jesus. It's not in what you do. It's in who you are. It's in who you are. I'm going to get into this a lot more next week. But Jesus is finally at this season, starting to articulate his significance. And that leads to step four. Most of us want to start with step four, but that leads to step four of the cycle of grace, and we call that fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. What did Jesus do with his acceptance? He's the Son of God and his sustenance. He's reading the Word, and he's practicing the spiritual disciplines, and he's in regular worship, and he's in regular community, and he's beginning to articulate his significance. I am the light of the world, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the good shepherd. Well, think for just a minute. How did grace flow out of Jesus's life? Consider that question for just a moment. How did grace flow out of Jesus's life? Several ways that I think that we can see the grace flowing out of his life. In one way, and this is a great study sometime, if you have some uh, free time on your hand, pick any of the Gospels. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just pick one, grab a pen or a pencil, and circle the number of times that Jesus did something in the way of a healing, a miracle, something along those lines that he wasn't planning on doing. But it just flowed out of the compassion of who he was. I think it's Luke chapter 7, maybe Mark 7, I'm not 100% sure, but it's the account of the widow at Nain. Now, we don't know anything about the village at Nain. At least, I don't know anything about the village at Nain. And um, you, know, you probably have to go to the Holy Land to try to track down what is the significance today. But we know that Jesus was on a journey with his disciples from point A to point B, and they find themselves in the village of Nain. He wasn't planning on doing a miracle, but see, then he saw it. It was a funeral procession. And he noticed that the casket wasn't a, a full-size casket. It was a it's a smaller casket. And then he heard the mumbling, he heard the rumbling that a widow who had previously lost her husband had lost her own only son. And the Greek word is one of those really cool words that transliterates into English in a cool way, splunknizo. I mean, it's just a cool word. Who doesn't like a word like splunknizo? But it means compassion from your very inner being. Jesus was moved to the point that he said, we're not having a funeral today. This funeral's turned into a party. And he raised the widow's son from the dead. He didn't plan on doing a miracle. But compassion got the very best of him, and grace flowed out of him. Think of the number of times that Jesus found himself face-to-face with broken people, sinful people, people that had missed the mark. And what did he do? He forgave them. He said, I love you. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, the religious leaders wanted to stone her to death because of the law of Moses. Jesus said, yeah, if y'all don't have sin, you go first. They all walked away. And he loved her and he embraced her and he forgave her and he said, go leave your life of sin. What about Jesus' incredible love for children? We're going to be reading in the book of Mark this week if you're doing the daily Bible readings. And in a couple different instances, we're going to see Jesus' absolute passion for children. Let the children come to me. Don't get in the way of anyone like this. The healings. Jesus had an incredible heart for the marginal, the least of these. And so for a lot of us that are gathered here today, um, we're not the least of these. We're the most of these, if that's a phrase. We're blessed. We got a lot. This church is blessed. This church has a lot. And yet Jesus had a heart for those who didn't. And I need to and you need to as well. Grace absolutely flowed out of him. Let me summarize this phase four by giving you a picture. Anybody here have a favorite tree? It's kind of a silly question. Anybody have a favorite tree? I do have a favorite tree in my backyard. I love it. I like to hang out underneath it, especially on 99-degree days. Gives me some shade. It's a blessing. How about a favorite garden hose? Anybody here have a favorite garden hose? Probably not, right? I want you to think about the difference between a water hose, a garden hose, and a tree. Think about that for just a moment. What's the difference between a water hose and a tree? Well, a water hose really, when you get right down to it, is simply a conduit. That's really all that it is. It takes water from a source, and it passes it to another location. It's simply a conduit. That water hose is not changed, at least not in a positive kind of way. 
That water hose doesn't really impact anything else along the way, unless you get a little hole in it or something along those lines. But it's simply a conduit. Now think about a tree and think about water. Tree is much different. See, a tree absorbs water, and as it absorbs water, it is changed. My son Peyton planted a pine tree when he was just a little kid. And it's been like 10 years, and that tree is really starting to grow. And that's because that tree has changed. As water comes and the seasons change, that tree has changed. But here's the other thing. That tree impacts everything that's around it. And so here's the spiritual connection. Too many Christians settle for being a water hose. We're simply a conduit. We know a lot of stuff. We can regurgitate a lot of stuff. But we're not ever really changed. Well, what's that look like, Greg, you might ask? Here's what it looks like. You've memorized all the scriptures, all the lists of Paul in, in some of his books where he talks about some of the really awful sins that bring us down. And you know that gossip is one of the things that Paul absolutely despised. And yet gossip is what really gets you going. You're, you're a water hose. You're not a tree. You're not allowing that word to change you. And I could give you 15 different illustrations along those lines. Too many Christians settle for the water hose instead of the tree that they're called to be. So I'm almost done, but two challenges. I've got to throw this. This is kind of the bad news. This is kind of the rest of the story. There, there's two catches with all of this. Two challenges that I think Christians face when you consider the cycle of grace, and the first is this, too many of us want to travel backwards on the cycle. We don't want to start with acceptance and sustenance, sustaining activities. We want to start right away with fruitfulness. Put this next uh, image up on the screen. This is the cycle backwards here, where you start with achievement, you start with the fruitfulness, and you use that to finally get to the point that you finally feel acceptance and the problem with that is you're going to spend the rest of your life doing and doing and doing and doing and you'll never get to acceptance you'll never get there and so that's our real challenge with the cycle the second thing is this to overemphasize one part of the cycle to the peril of others I would say, and they aren't here today, so I'm going to talk about them in their absence, but I've been incredibly thankful for two of the ladies in our church that have really had a profound impact on me in a very good way for my spiritual life, and that is Becky Glenn and Susan Klein. And they started talking about the uh, spiritual, um, the sacred rhythms, the spiritual life activities, and when they first started talking about the silence and the solitude, I've got to be honest with you, there's a little bit of me that was like, but I'm a man. That's not cool. That, that's not something that men do, is it? And I've realized that it really is something that this man needs to do, and I don't do it enough, quite honestly. And I've absolutely fallen in love with silence and solitude and prayer, getting away from everything and, and just practicing that sustenance, that sustaining activity of growing in my faith. But here's the catch. If that's all I did, 24-7, seven, seven days a week, all I did was silence and solitude, I wouldn't be a preacher. What would I be? I'd be a monk, right? I really would be. I mean, I wouldn't have the cape and the hood. I mean, I should get that if I'm going to be a monk, but I, I wouldn't ever have the opportunity to influence others. 
And so you can take something that's really awesome, but if you overemphasize it to the peril of others, it doesn't become awesome. It becomes your downfall. Probably the greatest challenge for a lot of us is that we want to jump right to fruitfulness. We want to jump right to impact. When I was working at Lincoln Christian College, I actually had a neighbor come to me as a director of admissions, and he was in his late 50s, and he said, I want to be like J.K. Jones. And I said, well, I think everybody wants to be like J.K. Jones. He's pretty awesome. He said, no, 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 you don't understand it. He goes, I want to be the guy that stands in front of the church at 700 and preaches the sermons. He said, I don't have time for all that Bible stuff. I don't have time for all those theology classes, but I think I could do it pretty well. And I said, you're probably right. You probably could get up there and, and grab a manuscript and preach away pretty well. But that's not the point. J.K. Jones is who he is and where he is. If you guys don't know him, former professor at Lincoln, pastor at Eastview, one of the guys I really look up to in life. But he didn't get to that point because he said, I want the bright lights to shine on me. He got to that point because he practiced the cycle of grace over and over and over again. And my man left really sad that day at the words that I had to share with him. There's no shortcuts. There's no easy way. And so, again, these four sermons are really kind of one big sermon lumped in together, so you have to come back next week. But here's the bottom line. Here's what I want to leave with you today. Here's what I want to kind of float through your heart and your mind this week. Don't settle for being a water hose when you're called to be a tree. Don't settle for just knowing a lot of stuff and being able to regurgitate a lot of stuff or doing a lot of stuff when you're called to be a tree, soak it in, allow yourself to be changed, and eventually be an influence in all around you, all those around you. Let's pray. God, thanks for today, and thanks for the chance to gather. Thank you for the chance to worship. Um, thank you for this picture, this cycle of grace that we've studied today. And God, I need balance in my life, and I'm not very good at it sometimes. And we need balance in our lives, and we're not very good at it sometimes. So God, help us. Um, if today's a hard message for us, help us to, to really take it to heart, to really self-evaluate, to be willing to, to put changes in place. Not for achievement's sake, not so we can throw statistics out, but so that we can truly understand what being at peace really is. What the peace of God really is. God, we thank you so much for Jesus and this living illustration that we have in front of us. This life that changed the world and is still changing the world. And so help us to be more like that. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We're, we're going to sing a couple songs. And it's